Well, we are uh, reading through the Anchored in the Word, and I have a little confession to make, that reading through the Anchored in the Word, it's a two-year Bible reading. If you haven't joined us, please start reading through God's Word on a daily basis. It'll transform your life. The Lord tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. It's nourishment for our souls. And so uh, we, the Old Testament is so big, we break it up into two years. Well, I read through the, the whole Bible every year, even though we're on a two-year schedule. So I was reading in uh, Exodus, which is actually from the previous year's reading, and I chose my passage, developed my message, printed my notes, and then I went, oh, snap, that's the wrong year. <laughs> what do you do when you pick the wrong passage and you print your notes? You apologize and just go for it. That's what you do. <laughs> you, you don't back up. Hey, so we want to look at the art of leadership and everything that we're looking at in the last two years in our country, even if we're looking at this last one year of administration, it is failed leadership. Everything rises or falls on leadership. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to open to Exodus chapter 18, as we basically have a leadership consultant step on the scene. His name is Jethro. If you didn't bring a Bible today, our servants team would love to give you a Bible. They're coming down the aisles. Just raise your hand. They'll get one into your hands. Find your way to Exodus chapter 18. In a moment, we're going to stand up and read this passage of Scripture. But we see some incredible advice that Moses has the greatest need of because he has the greatest leadership challenge in the history of the world. He's going to come out of Egypt with two to three million people with no provisions. Think of this. You're now going to go camping for 40 years with nothing. How well does that go, right? And so he needs leadership instruction because he's in over his head. As a matter of fact, Moses, if you trace through his story, at one point in the book of Numbers, he's so sick and tired of the people complaining that he prays and he says, God, if you're going to treat me like this, just kill me. Like he can't take it anymore. He's just like had it up to here. And the Lord's like, it's okay, Moses, you're having a bad day. I'm going to anoint 70 elders. They're going to help you with this leadership issue. But we want to look at this passage and learn some valuable lessons. As a matter of fact, I've identified 10 lessons that anybody can learn, anybody can implement within ministry, within service, within their community, within your workplace of employment, because the concepts of leadership are transferable wherever you bring them. So let's stand together, read Exodus chapter 18. We're picking up in verse 13. For our message, the art of leadership. Verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. 
Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws. Show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they shall bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, God and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. Father, we ask now that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your word by your spirit. And Lord, we pray for the people of Ukraine. Lord, we pray for the people that are in desperate situations, refugees. Lord, we pray that you would intervene. Lord, we don't know what the answer is except that you would rescue and intervene and answer the cry of your people that are crying out to you during this great crisis. Lord, we pray for our own country and our own county that you'd give us wisdom and the skills of leadership to see our community remain safe and free. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we look at the art of leadership, uh, just thinking about just this crazy last week. I was over in Idaho and uh, had an incredible meeting over there with about 900 people. It was really a blessing. And we came back to town. And then yesterday, there was an all-day event with uh, candidates over at Eden Garden. And people were hearing from them. There was a debate between our two sheriff candidates and our two DA candidates. And everything is struggling for leadership. We see in the last two years with the pandemic and, and what is going on. And it and when we look at somebody that's a bad leader or somebody that's not honest or not truthful and is leading us astray, it's very frustrating, isn't it? And, and we, we're trying to dig for the truth. And why should we have to dig for the truth? Shouldn't the leaders just be honest with us? And yet they're hiding so many things. And then we discover it in a backhanded way that makes us now mistrust those in leadership. I have been in situations where I worked with really good leaders and I've worked for really bad leaders. And the key is when we invite the Lord into the situation and we get wisdom from him and what his word has to say, all of a sudden we get on a sound footing to move forward in leadership. And that's what Moses needs. You see, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, has come to visit him. Now, it's somewhat comical for us who are older. I cannot think of Jethro without thinking of the Beverly Hillbillies, right? So it's really hard for me to get serious about Jethro Bodine, you know? It's like, there's a story about a man named Jed, poor mountaineer, but he kept his family fed. Then one day he was shooting at some crude food, and up from the ground came a bubbling crude. Well, so we're, all, we're all old people. So... And uh, I had a crush on Ellie Mae. But, 
But Jethro is a quite seriously gifted administrator and leader. Moses, it tells us, Stephen does, in the book of Acts chapter 7, that he was mighty in word and deed when he was in Egypt. But for 40 years, he's been on the backside of the desert taking care of sheep. And he's never gotten this advice from his father-in-law in in the last 40 years. But now in this new situation, watch what happens. It's as if Jethro steps on the scene, watches his first day of work of his son-in-law, and he has a little leadership consultation with him. It tells us, first of all, we're going to see the art of observation. Any consulting starts with observing the goings-on. What is good? What is bad? What is inefficient? And it says in verse 13, and so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Now that's a long day, right? Seven days a week. The people are going to show up. Remember, it's two to three million people and everybody that has a dispute, think of uh, Judge Judy, right? With a mile, uh, a a 10 mile long (laughs) waiting list for people to get before Moses, and he's going to say, you're right, you're wrong, give him back his pitchfork, you know, all, all the stuff that they have going on. And Moses is trying to be a good leader. I mean, he, he has good intentions. He's wanting to be faithful. The people want to get things solved. And so he observes the problem. And that's what a good leader does. First of all, is you want to check out what the problem is. You want to observe those things. You want to say, really, what's going on? You can't just, when... What brought me here to God speak is I had handed off my my church after 24 years in Idaho, Water Springs, and I started a leadership consulting for churches. That's what I wanted to do. Help pastors and their teams grow ministry for the glory of God. Now, I didn't get very far into my uh, adventure before the pandemic and Pastor Rob said, hey, you want to come and help? And, And so I did. And the first thing I wanted to do is I want to come out and hang out and observe for a week. That's what I want to do. I want to hang out with the team and observe and get involved. Now, through the progress of time, we ended up making a, you know, basically agreeing, hey, I'll just come on as co-pastor and we'll go forward until the Lord comes again or till Rob gets sick of me. That's the plan. You want to know what the plan is? That's the plan. And, or, you know, I might get sick of him. You never know which way it's going to go. But right now, it's, it, we're having a lot of fun doing what we're doing. So we we have no plans of any kind of transition except exactly what we're doing. But you must observe what is going on. Are you a person that wants to answer situations before you actually investigate and find out what's up? Sometimes people just jump into the middle of things, like a bull in a china closet. you, You have to have the patience to observe things. Number one. Number two, you need the art of inquiry, being able to ask the right questions and elicit the answers that you need to hear. In this case, it says, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand before you from morning until evening. And and then Moses answers the question. He goes, well, the people come to me and I want to give them an answer. And so they're having a dialogue. Uh, you see, the beauty of asking questions and to, to have um, the right answers come out. And I, by the right answers, I don't mean that somebody's trying to present a perfect picture. I mean that they actually get to the bottom of it, to be able to ask good questions. Some people are great at basically transmitting a lot of language, but you don't ask 
pertinent questions. Now, this father-in-law has a very deep relationship with his son-in-law, 40 years, right? And so they have the ability to go deep fast with things that could be offensive for other people. So they have a deep relationship. I've been married for 35 years, so I have a relationship with my father-in-law for 35 years. But longer than that, because my wife and I, we went out when she was 15 and I was 17 in high school. And so, and her dad rightfully hated my guts. He was a cop and I was a criminal and that's a dangerous combination. So when I showed up, he would grunt at me. I would say, hi, his name's Ron. I'd say, hi, Ron. He would, and I would, I would pick Tammy up and away we'd go. And I'd go, man, your dad hates my guts. And honestly, even at that point, I could think, I, I understand why he would hate me. Like if I had a daughter and somebody like me came around, I would shoot him. <laughs> right? Because I was not a good, I was not a nice guy. And I wasn't good for Tammy in that regard. But after all the years, we got... We got married, we've been married for 35 years, and, and if, we, if we make it to May 17th, it'll be 36 years. So from the time, <laughs> praise the Lord. Hold your applause, we're not out of the woods yet. That's what Tam and I always say, we're not out of the woods. We haven't really contemplated divorce, but we've been thinking about murder every now and then. <laughs> and uh, you know, all relationships have those, those dynamics. But after our 25th wedding anniversary, you know, when you're, you have in-laws for, I've, Tammy and I have been together this year 40 years, okay, 40 years from our first date. And her parents are like my parents now. You know what I mean? If, if you have that dynamic. Her mom and dad are like my mom and dad. And my mom and dad are like her mom and dad. And we have that kind of intimate relationship. But after our 25th wedding anniversary, we went out with her parents. We were going to my wife's favorite pizza place called Maxie's in Twin Falls, Idaho, where she grew up eating pizza. And we were having pizza. And Ron looked at me and he smiled. And he's a quiet guy. He's, not, he's a man of few words. He smiled and he said, you, do you know what I said on the day that you got married? And I paused because I thought to myself, I'm not sure that I want to hear what's going to come out. <laughs> And he said, I went into the bathroom that morning. You and Tammy are going to get married. So you see, Tammy is the joy of their life. She is an only child. They both worked for one simple reason, to give Tammy whatever she wanted. And then I came along. <laughs> and so Ron went into the bathroom, and he put his hands on the bathroom vanity, and he leaned close to the mirror, and he looked at himself in the mirror, and he said, what did you do to deserve this, Ron Davis? And he was talking about me. He was so devastated that the trial of his life had showed up <laughs> in my form. Now, after all these years, I finally won his heart, and he no longer grunts at me, and we have a great relationship. And we can talk about hard things. You see, Moses is... He, he's been married, Moses has been married to Jethro's daughter for 40 years. And he now is able to ask him hard questions and observe what he's doing in his new job. Because you see, he was just a shepherd and now he's led two to three million people out of Egypt and now he's gonna tell him exactly what he thinks. The art of communication and he's very direct in verse 17. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. You want the short answer? 
<laughs> what you're doing, son, is just not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you, or you are not able to per perform it by yourself. He says, you know what, son? What you're doing is not good. You're going to wear these people out. You're going to burn out. You're not going to last in your new role, your new ministry, because nobody can go from sun up to sundown with this kind of pressure, this kind of emotionally charged conflict between every uh, two people that come before them to have resolution to their conflict. Nobody's going to be able to endure that. So he sees the handwriting on the wall that this is bad for the people. They don't get a quick resolution. And it's bad for you because you will not be able to last. So the art of communicating these things. Fourth, the art of prioritization. He tells him now what he must do. This is what's important for you, Moses. He sees it as, as clear and plain as the nose on his face. Verse 19, listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people. He's saying, Moses, you pray for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. He says, Moses, you are going to have three priorities. Here's two of them right here. You need to pray for the people. You need to teach the people the word of God. That's what you need to focus on. It's the same thing that the apostles in Acts chapter 6 ran into. There were 12 apostles, and they had all of these widows that they were feeding because they were the safety net, the welfare program of the day was the church, the believers, the families, and these widows needed support. So the, the uh, apostles who were supposed to be praying and preaching the word were now just making sure everybody's fed. Now, it wasn't that the widows aren't important and feeding them was not important, but it wasn't the best use of their time because anybody could bring the widows bread and feed them and take care of them. You see, prioritization doesn't mean that you're, these other things you don't do are beneath you. It simply means they're not your number one priority. If you want to be good at anything, you will focus on what your calling is, what your gifting is, what your skills are, and anybody else that can do other things, you allow them to do that. And what happens is everything, the entire organization begins to rise. Now with that prioritization, when things get really busy, that's the, the danger in ministry is a pastor comes with this passion to pray and to preach. And what happens is growth explodes and now all the needs of the people overwhelm you and pretty soon you're not really praying and studying and preaching like you used to. Now you become an administrator. But that's not how it, this whole thing blew up in the first place. Where we were at in Water Springs before I handed things off and moved on, our fellowship was about 3,000 people. I had about 120 people on staff. I had 10 direct reports. And... I had to prioritize, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to preach, and I'm going to lead this team. That's pretty much all I could do. Now, when you have a church of 3,000 people, there's a lot of people that are getting married. You know what I mean? Now, this was a very difficult thing, but you would have rehearsal, and then you would have the wedding. And sometimes I would have, I had four, four services a weekend, Saturday night and three Sunday morning services. And then if I had two weddings with two rehearsals, and two weddings, and then by the time I got to the preaching, I was already worn out. So I made a very hard decision 
that has been very unpopular, and that is, I stopped doing weddings. Now, do you know how hard that is? Because I was there for 25 years, I dedicated a child on the platform of church, and now he's getting married at the age of 21. And who's he want to marry him? Well, his pastor, right? Now, if I do it for him, then I can't say no to the other three because then, you know, I'm like picking and choosing and you're cute and you're not and you were here for a long time, you know what I mean? And it just got too confusing to me. I'm like, I, the most important in my calling was we are to, I was to go into all the world and to preach the gospel and make disciples. I was not going to, into all the world and doing all the weddings in the valley, and some of the weddings are, it's a destination. Hey, we're going to go up in the mountains. You know, it's going to be up here 70 miles. And I know you can get back by church. It's like. So I stopped doing weddings. Oh, you should have heard the uproar. Rick's too good for our weddings. So that was it. If you really want me to give my best on Saturday night and Sunday morning and see people get saved and grow in their walk with God and get baptized and walk with the Lord, then I can't do all the weddings on the planet. i got to make decisions. So you have to prioritize things. And as long as you're doing the word <laughs> and prayer for a minister. Now, I have a friend that started a, an extreme sports snowmobile operation and it just went to the moon. It was like, it was so successful. But what he loved to do is tinker and then go test drive all the, the snow machines. That's what he did. But what happened is the administration came in and pretty soon he's like worrying about, you know, receipts and things like that. And he's like, forget that. And he handed off everything. So I saw, he was so happy. Every time I saw him, I'd say, where you been? His name's Rocky. Where you been, Rocky? In the mountains riding my snow machine. Somebody else is taking care of receipts. Somebody else is taking care of all these other things that I don't want to be taken care of. You have to learn how to prioritize. And that is what Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, saw clear as day. Moses, you should be praying for the people. You should be teaching the people. And thirdly, you should select good people to do everything that you don't have the time to do. In verse 21, we see the art of selection. And this is so important. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, place such over them, be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So he says, this is what you need to do. And he gives these five qualities of people that you're looking for. Number one, they're going to be able men. That means they're competent. They're, they're gifted to be able to be good leaders. They, they fear God, so they have good character because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They want to honor God. And they're men of truth, so they have a conviction that truth's important rather than believing lies or uh, telling lies. And then they are men that are content instead of covetousness. They're not greedy for more because what ruins people in politics is greed. The lobbyists come along, promise them all this money, and pretty soon they forget about their character, they forget about truth, they forget about all these things, and all they want is money. These people, we send them to Washington, D.C. as an average income-making person, and after a few years, five years, they're like millionaires. Where'd they get all that money? But you look at their voting record, and now all of a sudden they're bought and paid for by all these big corporations. You're like, that's not the way it should work. 
Or we see this taking place even in uh, Big Pharma with people that are bought and paid for by Big Pharma during this last two years like we have never seen before. So they need to be content because you really have to have that attitude that, hey, I'm content. I have food and clothes. I don't need all your money. I want to do the right thing. Those people are hard to find. Have you discovered that? And if you do find them, they don't want to run for office because they say that's a messy business. It's very difficult to get the right people in the right place. And lastly, it says you should get those to place over them rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Because everybody has different capacities. Somebody can lead a thousand people. Somebody can lead a hundred people. Some people can lead 50 people. And some people can only lead 10 people. That has to do with a person's capacity. You see, these things that he's now looking for are the things that we look for in church leaders. It's what you're looking for at the business. It's what you're looking for in the political world. Wherever you go and you want leadership, these are the qualities that you want in these individuals. Now, we have seen terrible leadership, and I want you to know that it's, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said almost 3,000 years ago, he said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. It reminds me so much of this last two years we've just lived through. It says, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. And yet for two years, what have I, I've been marveling like, I can't believe it. I can't believe these idiots are in power. How do, how do morons get to this position? I don't know how that works. I'm, I'm marveling at the unbelief of it. And it says, for high official watches over high official and higher officials over them. So the reality is that all these, the network of politics, Solomon saw it then. Don't marvel that there's oppression. Don't marvel that there's injustice. Because this person that made that decision actually has a per someone over them that might be oppressive and that might be unjust, and that's just the way it goes. So you need really good people in place. Not only do we need it politically to have freedom, these emergency powers have robbed us and stripped us of our constitutional rights. It's almost like they put the Constitution in some cave and sealed it up like it doesn't even matter for the last two years, taking away personal liberty. But I think more tragic because it has physical effects is the lies that we have been told about COVID-19 for the last two years. Now, this article just came out in Epic Times, and it's all footnoted. You can go check this, look for this title of this article. The truth is coming out about COVID deaths. And this doctor, Dr. John Campbell, he's a Brit, and he does a 17-minute video. And I've just highlighted some things in the text that I'm giving you that he says verbally that is... So important. He said through a uh, Freedom of Information Act, he got all of the data for, in Great Britain about England and Wales. So that's not all of Great Britain, but that much. And you can ex extrapolate that to any industrialized nation. And it says for 21 months from January of 2020 through September of 21, so this is the data that we're looking at, the UK government reported, this is, this is how they terrify people, there's been 137,133 deaths from COVID. But is that true? Once they get the data from the government, this is really what it is. The actual number was 17,371. That's a disparaging number of almost eight times the amount of an inflated, exaggerated number. That would be like me saying that 10,000 people died and 79,000 died. 
That, that's a big number. It, it sounds very much like what happened a few months ago when the Supreme uh, Court Justice, Sotomayor, said that there's 103,000 children with COVID in the hospitals in America. The very next day, CDC Walensky comes out and says, no, there's only 3,500 kids with COVID. That was a 100,000 person exaggeration from a Supreme Court justice. And the CDC had to come out and correct her the very next day. Fortunately, she did correct her because usually that goes unstated. But that's not even the case because children, they're in hospitals. All those kids had severe medical problems. And they might have had COVID with it, but it was not the issue why they were in the hospital. So they had cancer. They have all kinds of terrible health problems. So when you hear these things, you get infuriated because you're like, why don't they just tell us the truth, right? They have this data. Check this out. So in the UK, in this study that Dr. Campbell unpacks for us, the median age of death for COVID-19 was 81.5 years of age. They had at least four comorbidities, meaning underlying health issues. So this is the average age of people dying from COVID in the UK, 81 years of age. So at, at that age, because my parents are both in their 80s, almost anything can tip them over at that point, right? I mean, you get the flu, you get pneumonia, you get whatever. It's, it's dangerous at that age. Compared to the UK life expectancy, which is 79 for men, this is normally, and 82.9 for women. They, they broke it down to this. The UK men who died of COVID-19, their lives were shortened by seven weeks. Seven weeks. And the women, literally, they say a half a week, three to four days. So wait, now let me just review this. COVID-19 comes, it's a new strain of flu, and what it does is it is an accelerant to attack, attack the elderly and the healthy, I mean the unhealthy, vulnerable population. Now, every year for my whole life, we called that flu season, where somebody got the flu, they got pneumonia, and they passed away, right? I mean, that happens with people that have health issues. But we have locked down an entire nation for two years, forced people to wear masks. Now they want to pass laws to inject children that are not even susceptible to this, and yet they know the side effects. Check this out, because we're talking about leadership, right? So if it's in the political world, which a lot of this is, and then it over, it's, it's politics overlaps with big pharma. That's what's happening. And I wish we had some good leadership. In a moment, we'll talk about those who actually rose as heroes as leaders. But the hospital's incentives are driving up COVID deaths. Hospitals receive extra money for COVID testing for all patients. They get extra money. They get, if they get a COVID diagnosis, they get extra money. If they get admitted patient into the hospital, they get extra money. If they use remdesivir, on the patient, they get extra money. If they use mechanical ventilation, they get extra money. And if they have COVID deaths, they get extra money. As a matter of fact, even coroners get bonuses for signing COVID on the death thing. So if you make it a, basically it's a <laughs> marketing scheme to make money, surely people are gonna get on the financial bandwagon. As reported by Citizen Journal, the U.S. government actually pays hospitals a bonus, 
get this, they pay the hospital a bonus on the entire bill if they use remdesivir, a drug shown to cause severe organ damage. Remdesivir studies show that 71 to 75% of patients suffer an adverse effect. And the drug often had to be stopped after five to 10 days because of these effects, such as kidney and liver damage and death. Three out of four people, three out of four people that they put remdesivir in had kidney damage, liver damage, or death. This is what the studies are saying. Now, what doctor is not going to pay attention to all the damage that is being done? Right now, we have a family member that is in that situation, went through all of this, and they're not sure if they're going to make it because they are in the throes of the after effects of this kind of treatment. Remdesivir trials during the 2018 West African Ebola outbreak had to be discontinued because the death rate exceeded 50%. If you give medicine to people and 50% of those people are dying, shouldn't you pay attention to that? Yet in 2020, Anthony Fauci directed that remdesivir was to be the drug hospitals used to treat COVID-19, even when the COVID clinical trials of remdesivir showed similar side effects. He knows all of these side effects, and that's what he wanted them to do. Add to that the ventilators. In ventilated patients, the death toll is staggering. This is through a discovery of a lawsuit in Texas. Thomas Rents announced at a Truth for Health Foundation press conference that CMS data showed in Texas hospitals, 84.9% of all patients died after more than 96 hours on a ventilator. 84% of people ventilated died in Texas. One investigator showed a staggering 80% of COVID-19 patients in New York City were placed on ventilators, died, 80% in New York, causing some doctors to question, you think, their use. UK data put the figure at 66%, and a small study in Wuhan found 86% of ventilated patients died in April 8, 2020 article. Why is truth so important? Why are good leaders that are willing to risk everything? But what has happened, you have to just go along to get along, don't you? I've talked to doctors, nurses, medical workers. They say, if I am honest on the reports about these death reports, I'll lose my job. I might lose my license. So they can't be honest. But in the midst of this, here's American frontline doctors, right? Peter McCullough, Robert Malone, all these people begin to stand up and they begin, because in these times, people are looking for someone that would be heroic in declaring the truth. That's what leadership is. Leadership is standing up and doing the right thing when everybody else is running for cover and just wants to go along to get along. And it's frightening so this is why it's so important, wherever it is, to get good quality leaders in the medical world, in the pharmaceutical world, in the political world, in the policing and law enforcement world. These things are crucial. Number six in the art of uh, leadership is the art of wisdom. In verse 22, and let them judge the people at all time. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. 
Now he delegates all of this leadership to these other people, and then they have to have the wisdom to know, is this a hard thing that I need to bring to Moses, or should I be able to take care of this? I had 10 direct reports at the fellowship where I was, and these 10 direct reports, when they came on in that role, I had a little conversation with them, and I said, I should only hear for the ministry that they're responsible for. We have children's ministry and youth ministry and a thrift store ministry and a coffee shop ministry and a radio network ministry and a TV ministry and a school ministry and all all these different things. And... I would say I should hear about 5% of the really difficult things and 95% of the things you should take care of and I should never hear about, right? Now, they're like, yeah, but how will I know? I'm like, you'll know. (laughs) You'll figure it out. And they're like, well, isn't there some kind of measurement or matrix? And I'm like, no, you're going to learn good decisions by making bad decisions. And that's okay. So after they had been with me about two years, they knew, okay, this is a decision Rick wants to hear about, and all this stuff Rick does not want to hear about. Because no news is good news when you're the leader. Because if you have 10 people bringing 5% of the bad, hard things, right, they're dealing with, that's 50% of a whole truckload of problems to sort through. This is the way leadership works so that you're fruitful in what you do. You need good people around you that are wise and they're willing to have skin in the game that they're making tough decisions and they know when a decision's big enough to bring you into the loop. The seventh art is self-selection because though Jethro's gonna give all of this advice, this is what he knows and this is what I know, is that you can give advice to people but you can't tell them what to do. You follow me? You can offer things to people and then when they get to choose, they'll embrace it or reject it and that's on them. Verse 23 says, if you do this thing, if you do it, if you want to implement this good advice, and God so commands you, meaning that you have a conviction in your soul that this is the Lord, or there's that gut level resonance inside of your soul like, yeah, that's right, that's the right thing to do. That person needs to learn to do that. Maybe you're watching this on live stream, or maybe you're in this service, and you own a small business. You got 20 people that work for you. And you hear all of this advice, and if we were talking one-on-one, or I came and observed things, and it doesn't, all this stuff's transferable. I can be dropped into any kind of technical world, or physical world, or construction world, or ministry world, or political world. I could drop into any of it, and you just start sorting this stuff out, because there's these concepts. But at the end of the day, if you choose to do it, it's like marriage advice, right? Most people, first of all, are not looking for marriage advice, right? And if you go to offer it unsolicited, you're probably going to get the cold shoulder. I always think it's the funniest that when single people that have never had a child give married people advice who have children. And to see the smirk on the married person's face or the parent's face while this person is giving them unsolicited advice Because they know some Bible verses surrounding those things, that's what they're peppering them with. Now, God's word's good, but that person delivering the message has absolutely no experience and knows not what they speak of. It's this interesting phenomenon, this whole relational thing, and interacting with people and giving people advice and them receiving it or not. Because, you know, the, the crazy thing about people is that You might think you understand things from a distance, but unless you've walked a mile in those shoes, you really don't know what that feels like, 
right? You don't know what that, what that, when you go to bed at night, you don't know what it feels like to lie awake thinking about these things. And it tenderizes you somewhat when you realize, hey, I, if somebody asks for advice, I can give them some advice, but they still have to embrace that. It's self-selection. That's the art of self-selection. Because if somebody chooses that, then I, I discovered this with, with our kids. We have a son and a daughter. And, and you have a lot of bickering when you have kids. Do you have a lot of bickering? Oh, I'm not going to ask. Anyway, kids bicker. He touched me. He took this. He you know, went back and forth and back and forth. Well, anytime there's something to divide. Now, I was reading a verse one day, and my kids were always like, you know, I want this, and he gets half, or, or vice versa, however it works. And I, w- I was reading this verse in Proverbs, and it says that the casting of lots keeps the mighty apart. Meaning, basically, a roll of the dice. Like, if people say, this is mine. No, this is mine. You come, and what I would do... <laughs> with my kids, if they have a candy bar, there's only one candy bar, and they're five and eight years, uh, five and eight years of age, it, that candy bar is a big deal. It's the center of their world at this moment, right? And, and they had a choice. I'd say, okay, who gets to divide it and who gets to choose the piece? Because if the person divides it and then chooses the piece, what are they gonna do? They divide it and they, they break it in such a way that they got the big fat half. It's just human nature. Self-preservation, sweet tooth, whatever you want to call it, they're going to get the big half. So in our family, it was very simple from the time they were young. I'd say, okay, who's going to divide it? And then the other person gets to choose. Now, when they're going to divide it and they know the other person gets to choose, they're like getting a measuring tape. (laughs) Because if it's obvious one piece is bigger, then the other one gets to, to grab that. But everybody always went away happy because they both got to choose. I got to choose to divide or I got to choose to take, make that decision. When you leave decisions in the hands of others when they've had the good advice, avoid the temptation of forcing them to make the decision that you think is the right one. Because if you do and it goes bad for them, they're going to turn around and blame who? You. You let them decide so that they have to live with the consequences of it. Number eight, the art of results. It says, then you will be able to endure it. All this people will also go to their place in peace. There's a reward for doing all of this, you guys. And that is, number one, for Moses, he will endure and last a long time. He will not burn out in his endeavor to serve God. Number two, the people are going to go away in peace because they get their answers really quick without a big line. So the reward is worth it. But then you have to implement all of this in verse 24, the art of implementation. And so Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. He did exactly all the advice, sounded good. He implemented it and he was able to endure and the people were blessed. And that's what you call success. That's what you call some, a work prospering because everybody's doing the thing that they're designed to do. The key to life is to figure out what you're designed to do and run in that lane and figure out what you're not designed to do, right? Have you discovered when you look around in the world, there's more things that have, there's more needs than you have capacity 
to accomplish? You see, you and I are a limited resource. We are not all-knowing, all-powerful, or everywhere present at once as God is. I can only, I only have so much time, I only have so much energy to be able to focus on things. And so it's really important that I do the right things so that I'm fruitful in my endeavor. And allowing other people to do those things. Because you know, this is the thing. People that have this desire to do everything and to be the answer for everybody, they have a bit of a Messiah complex that they want to be the answer for everything. I want them to come to me for the answers. When I raise up leaders around me, they'll say, this happened and I made that decision. I'm like, praise God, I didn't even have to be involved. There's no Messiah complex whatsoever. It's like, whew, that just lightened my load because you took care of that. But people that, they have this need to be needed. They frustrate everybody because first of all, you're, sending, you're bringing all the people to you and everybody's waiting for you to make that answer for them in the place of employment. And what happens is it becomes a log jam. But because you're unwilling to share the credit and to share the responsibility and to share the load with others, whatever you're doing is very stifled because somehow you have to be the hero of the story. Now, that's the beautiful thing in God's kingdom. As Jesus is the hero of his story, our story, and all of us are just, we're just servants doing what he's called us to do. Now, I love this because having started a consulting ministry, uh, the last one, the 10th thing, is the art of departure, knowing when to leave. <laughs> you, you've shared your input, and this is true in every area, isn't it? Verse 27, then Moses uh, let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. You know, uh, you, you need to know when you've shared enough. You need to know um, when to go home. You need to know you've shared some things with a friend of yours, some counsel, and, and don't just keep at it. You need to know when to pull away. You've said enough. Let them process it. Let them work through it. Let them implement it or not implement it. Get back with them in a month if they want to talk to you ever again in the history of your relationship. But the beautiful thing about loving people and counseling people, having been a pastor for 32 years and counseling a lot of people, people would come in to the office and they would pour out their problems. And then I would say, what do you think the answer to your problems is? And they would pour out what they think the answer is. And probably eight out of 10 times, they answered themselves what the right thing is to do. They just lacked the resolve to do it, right? They, wanted, they need confirmation through talking out loud and working it through with someone, but they knew the right thing. Oftentimes, they had the answer. Now, two out of those 10 times, you had to point them in the right direction with God's word, point them in the right direction because of the tangle of their emotions, whatever it might be. But that's why it's so important that we come to God's word and prayer consistently in our own lives because you know what? The Lord helps us solve a lot of those problems as we just seek Jesus daily. And we don't need a lot of other advice. When we do, it's there for us. The art of leadership, everything rises or falls in leadership, in the family, dads that are leaders in the home, at work, in ministry, pastors that are leading in a way that's healthy. Wherever you go, good leaders are in short demand May the Lord strengthen you and me in the process of this great endeavor 
to be a blessing and useful for God when we find out our gifting and the lane we're to run in and to do it with all of our hearts. Solomon says this. He said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So go for it in what God has called you to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness. We pray that you would build us up and strengthen us in this endeavor. Lord, I pray for those right now that are, they're confused. They're burned out. They're running around like a chicken with their head cut off, not having really clear direction. And Lord, as they seek you, may they hear from you. Lord, you said that if we seek, we will find. If we ask, we will receive. If we knock, the door will be opened unto us. So we come asking for that direction from you. Put people in our lives that can give us good advice, sound advice, and it would build us up in you. Thank you for this time together in Jesus' name.